Well, last week as we began our series, In Their Shoes, which is a series on looking at Christ through the disciples' eyes, that is meant to form in us a heart like the heart that Christ was forming in those that followed after him in those first days. We were in Mark chapter 4, verse 13, where Jesus went apart to pray and seeking after the Father's will, was praying for the selection out of all of the crowd that had begun to follow him, was praying for the selection of 12. And after praying all night, the scriptures record that Jesus, when he had met back with the disciples, he chose among them 12, and he chose them for two reasons. Number one, that they would be with him. And number two, that they would go from him. Number one, that they would be with him. That is, that they would fellowship with him. That there would be an apprenticeship. There would be a a learning, a training. So that they might know of this one whom they would then be sent to preach. This is the desire of Christ for all of our lives. All of us who are here this morning who who consider ourselves to be followers of of Christ, the Christians, are called unto this this very same calling to, to be with Christ, that we might be trained to go forth from Christ. One person had said it it would be that we would not merely make disciples, but that we would make apostles. Now, when you think on your life this morning, have have you become, have you... Uh, put your heart's intent on making disciples for Jesus Christ. This is Jesus' desire. Jesus' desire is to make disciples and praise God. He is still in the disciple-making business today. At the end of our challenge last week from this message then, we were encouraged that we might pray a simple prayer. And that is, Lord, would you, would you enable me? Would you use me in some way this week? to be a part of your making of disciples. I pray that that prayer had become a reality this week, and, and if not, then it continues to shape your heart through the series because we are called into obedience that we are in the disciple-making business. This is the purpose of your life, is to glorify God by making disciples. We can't get out from underneath it. No matter where we are in our station and season of life, no matter where we are in our, in our walk of faith, whether we're, we're a young believer or we've walked with Jesus for decades, Jesus has not released this commission. He has not relieved us from this purpose. Jesus commands us to make disciples. But the title of the message this morning is Jesus Calls Disciples. So if we're to make disciples, then then we, we recognize that there needs to be something working about in the spirit, in the heart of those whom we are making disciples, and even in our own hearts. So Jesus is calling us to be a disciple, first of all. We must be the kind of disciple who is able to make disciples. So turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 14. This morning... We find ourselves in verses 25 to 35 in Luke chapter 14. And I ask that you follow along as I read in the word of God this morning. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, 
He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes up against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, let us pray together. We want ears to hear, Lord. Now, will you speak to us? Will you remove every distraction and remove every excuse and humble us before the word of Christ? And let us sit here and be undone that every layer of pride be shed that without bias, self-bias, without any excuses, we let you tear us down and then we watch as you build us up. Father, do a work of mercy this morning through the word of mercy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke says that thousands were still following Jesus by this time in his life. Really, he gives us this picture that they were like window shoppers. Do you like window shopping? That's about the only kind of shopping we tend to do, almost like Amazon shopping more than window shopping. But window shoppers, they looked on with admiration and desire upon Jesus, this thing, this feature, this figure that was so extraordinary, yet they lacked the commitment of personal devotion. These masses of people still saw Jesus as an add-on, as an extension to their lives, and not the essential center that he ought to be. Self-reliance, self-love, self-ambition crowded their hearts and competed for the singular love that they ought to have for Jesus Christ. You see, following Jesus is not at all about adding him to anything. It's about making him everything. Many by this time had experienced fantastic displays 
people that they had lived next door with or were in their family or even themselves who were lame leaped for joy. Others had issues of blood and a cancer and disease that were really incurable by, by any human and maybe even by science and its medicine. Today, others were even raised from the dead and were now were mocking, walking amidst this crowd. They had no doubt been caught up in the spectacle that Christ generated everywhere that he traveled. These experiences swept many into sort of a euphoria where their religious experience replaced their much-needed personal belief on Christ. They were there, if you will, for the handouts. But they were not willing to take the hand of God and allow him to lead them away from their own self-rule. It wasn't unusual for rabbis to have followers They saw Jesus as a rabbi, and we could easily speculate that no rabbi who ever lived had such a great following. But Jesus, I'm sorry, but just because these crowds followed Jesus doesn't mean all of them looked unto him with a heartfelt faith. In his merciful compassion towards the crowds, Jesus clarified what he was calling people to do in order for them to realize what they needed in order to receive salvation. Jesus was grieved that so many, as he looked out on the crowds, were self-deceived, deceived into believing that they could come into the kingdom on their own terms or come into the kingdom someday. And such, by the way, are many of the religious in our world today. They have become self-deceived and believing that they have their own terms for entrance in the kingdom or that possibly they'll come to a negotiation point at some point in their life where they'll be able to realize terms of peace with God to enter into the kingdom and those terms will be their own. But sadly, with these crowds and with the crowds that we see around us today, their inadequate attempt to keep the law perfectly and thusly satisfying the holy demands of God was reason for their outright rejection of God into the kingdom. Until they would realize that their self-reliance cannot break through the narrow gate into the kingdom, they could not be a disciple of Christ because discipleship means self-abandonment. So in a threefold explanation, using a figure of speech like a comparison, it's called a Hebraism. It's a, it's a grammatical tool used in literature and in speech that Christ was using, a Hebraism that is, that is an outrageous contrast. In a threefold explanation using Hebraism, Jesus stripped away their self-reliance to expose that at the heart of true Christianity are three things. Number one. There is an unashamed love. There is an unashamed love in the follower of Christ. In this first layer of his discourse, beginning in verse 26, Jesus explains in a comparative term that if your attitude of love towards Christ is less than your loyalty to your family, you cannot be my disciple. Now, in these times, family was a close-knit bond, It was the means by which you would receive not only your reputation, but your success, your career path, and even in time to come, your inheritance. 
It was with your family that you would enter into the temple. It was with your family that you would gather for the sacrifices. It was, it was, everything was built around your family, the people that you love. Your loyalty was first to your family. And so this love for family was less, in, in a sense, objective, and Jesus was calling it into a subjective attitude. What do we mean by that? Jesus is not contradicting, contradicting the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments, which, by the way, is the first commandment given between relationship of, of man and himself, relationship with others. Honor your father and your mother. Jesus isn't contradicting this, nor is he commanding us to be angry and, and bitter towards our family. That's not at all how this Hebraism is, is laid out. We, we know earlier in Jesus' teaching, he had commanded the disciples to view and hate sin like, like it would defile them, like if your eye would look upon something that would cause you to compromise your faith and to fall and stumble into sin. You were to pluck out your eye, or if your hand were to, to reach for something that wasn't yours or wasn't the timing for yours, you were to cut off your hand. But we don't, do not see the 12 disciples walking around blind and maimed. It was a Hebraism. So too, this is an outrageous contrast meant to emphasize a certain truth. It is this. The truth is that the disciple of Christ will be loyal to Jesus first. Loyal to Jesus first. And that he will lose his self-made reputation in identifying himself as being one with Christ. Loving Christ enough to be identified with him, even if it means you have become unidentified or disassociated with others for that reason. So an unashamed love. But secondly, an, an, an unrivaled loyalty. An unrivaled loyalty. In the second layer of Christ's discourse in verse 27, Jesus illustrates the way of a disciple as the way of one who is thrust out of society. They're carrying a judicial cross. You remember from teachings in the past that a cross was, was something for a, a member of society. They would, they would look on it with, with great shame. If you were to see someone who is carrying a cross, you know that they were going to the place of the skull or another place outside of the gates where they were about ready to be crucified and executed for something very shameful that had, that had wrought on them by the judicial system, this serious capital punishment. You would look upon them with derision and shame. And Jesus is saying that in, in this way, that you would follow after Christ, being willing to bear about this shame, will no one else be with me? Nonetheless, I will carry this cross. One who lays hold of the claims of Christ as their Savior is one who will bear the reproach of others who look upon him with reproach and scorn. The disciple of Christ will be loyal to Jesus first, losing his self-made reputation. But there's also, thirdly, an unqualified loss. In the third layer of this discourse, in verses 28 to 32, Christ lays out the terms of the price to follow him. So it won't be ignorance, it won't be with ignorance that one will look to him. There needs to be a personal and honest assessment of each individual who looks to Jesus for their rescuing. 
the person who looks to Jesus for their salvation must become convinced that they cannot rely on their own means for their own deliverance. They cannot be their own savior. They have counted up the cost of what they will abandon and knowingly, willingly, they will leave it all behind in their pursuit of Jesus Christ. Nothing of what they own is to give them any security or confidence in their life. Only by following Christ can they truly be saved. In fact, their assessment, in their assessment of all these things, even the blessings, maybe you would consider it the wealth or the relationships or the things that are going their way, in all of the assessment of all of this, they count them as loss compared to the knowledge and experiencing life with Jesus Christ, that close fellowship with him. In essence, in essence, every person who comes to Jesus Christ must not only be saved from the judicial wrath of God, but must also be saved even from themselves and their self-made attempts to come to a reconciling relationship with God. When, when someone comes and pleads the mercy of Jesus Christ for deliverance and salvation from their sins, they are saying, I am abandoning all of my efforts to make this relationship between God and myself right. And so therefore, I am asking God, rescue me from myself. By the way, this is a worthy prayer of the surrendered believer. This is a worthy prayer as we, as we wake up in the morning, like the Apostle Paul would say, I die daily, I surrender myself. I am giving up all of my schemes. I am giving up all of my self-assessment, my self-deceit about who I am and what I really have to offer you, Lord. And I am just saying, I am all yours. And I am emptying out myself before you and saying, save me from myself. It must be you holy who lives through me today. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 demonstrated this as he looked back on what his attitude is as he follows Christ. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For when I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, then I may gain Christ. And I want to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, and that I may know the power of his resurrection, and that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. I want to be buried in Jesus Christ that I might rise in his power. This is the attitude. This is the spirit of the one who says, I count all but loss that I may gain the excellence of knowing Christ personally, of having a personal engagement with Jesus Christ. In this direct appeal to the crowd, as he looks out upon the unnumbered throng around him, 
Jesus is being an evangelist. He is preaching the gospel to this crowd around him. Will you be the ones, will you be the one who follows me? This discourse is not a training lesson for those who already are following him in faith as sort of a a level of further commitment. In prior conversations in the gospel, even Jesus unfolds uh, more of what it, what it is to follow him, that is to turn away from sin and to follow Christ. This is not a perfect, if you will, gospel presentation in this passage. But what it is in this discourse is rather reviewing these necessary truths as being an attitude of the heart of one who is following Christ. The attitude of the heart of a disciple is self-abandonment. Self-abandonment. And so the one who looks to Jesus with an unashamed love, the one who looks to Jesus with an unrivaled loyalty, the one who looks to Jesus with unqualified loss has this attitude to follow Jesus Christ. And so when we have counted the cost and we have laid aside the guarding of our reputation for the sake of calling him our Lord, we find that in him we have all. If we take this and turn it around, if Jesus isn't your all, likely it's very readily apparent to you what or who is. And it really doesn't matter what who is it is in an assessment, whether it's you or your things or other people, the fact is all of that must be discarded for the sake of following Jesus Christ. With real, without Jesus... We really have nothing at all. You can have the wealth on a thousand hills. You can have palaces. You can have relationships going for you. Um, You can have a lot of blessings. But you can be bankrupt if you don't know Jesus Christ. If you have everything but you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. But if you have Jesus, Jesus says you have enough. You have it all. And that's the attitude of a disciple. And so Jesus shares with us a little bit further in some pictures, some parables. I'm going to call this the parable of possibilities. And in this parable, there are two key figures. Remember, there's the tower and the the king going off to war. In the first story of a man who is desiring to build a tower carefully, he, he carefully calculates the cost so that an unfinished tower doesn't become his point of mockery from the town. He doesn't want it to be the ire of the town. He really doesn't even want to be the talk of the town. We don't know really what happens to this man, whether he really does accomplish and fulfill the building of the tower, but we are told that he at least is able to deliberate about the building of his tower. He takes into an account, he looks at his resources, looks at his bank account, his supplies, wants to make sure that that which he has put his hands to, he's able to finish. He doesn't want to start until he knows he can finish. 
It seems likely that he is able to eventually accomplish this project because of his attitude that we see, at least of intentionality. He's probably going to follow through with this because of the good start of intentionality. We don't know. But we see, at least, the attitude of intentionality that Jesus is calling his disciples to. But there's a second figure in this parable of possibilities that also catches our eye. The second is a story of a king with a decidedly and calculated undersized army of 10,000 who is about to become besieged by an army twice the size of his military might. As you read the story, there are several options at the disposal of this king. Let's think about the options that are available to him. Number one, he can run, take all of his military and run, leave the kingdom, find another kingdom, find another place to go, and just leave, leave his city, leave his village deserted for this new king to arrive in and call his own. So he can run, he can retreat. Or the second option is pretty obvious. He can go to war. He can hope maybe some of his geographical positions, some of the fortifications that he has in his kingdom, maybe even that his guys will each kill two instead of one and therefore make up the difference of ten to 20,000 and and he can wage war. He can enter into this war. But we find that Jesus gives us a, a third option, which seems pretty creative. He can go and make peace. And it is in this third option that Jesus reveals that the king chooses this option. And so what do you make of that? Someone is counting the cost. We've read a lot about cost in this passage. And even in the previous picture, we, we read that there was someone who was going to build a tower and they counted the cost. Now we have a king, and he's counting the cost. But what does action does he take as a result of counting the cost? Well, here's what I suggest the scripture speaks to in this parable. He doesn't have enough, does he? He doesn't have enough. If he were the tower guy, he wouldn't build the tower. He doesn't have enough. But in this case, something different happens that, that one wouldn't expect when we are talking about loss. In this, we're not sure we find any loss or any sacrifice. In this final revelation of counting the cost we realize that an honest assessment of what it is to count the cost of following Christ includes a humility, a humble assessment that even when we have counted everything, we still don't have enough to pay the price to follow Christ. We still don't have enough to follow him through, to follow through with what has become a reality in our lives. We're not sure the tower can be finished. We're pretty sure the war can't be won. We're not sure we can make it to the end of this discipleship thing. Someone asked me about a year ago, they said, who could ever count the cost to follow Christ? Do you remember on those precious moments when you were humbled in your heart and you cried out for Jesus for saving mercy, you had really no idea of the cost it would, it would 
cost you, the price it would cost you to pay to follow Jesus. The navigation through this world of of not holding on to the pleasures of this world. The confusion of family as they would relate to you, even sometimes even in an abrasive way and not understanding where your commitments firstly lie. The battle against the flesh and the temptations and the things that that you cannot have because they would be destructive towards your love for God, the idols that you have to discard. You may very well not have known, and likely no disciple knows, what eventually will transpire in their walk with Christ. So how could anyone estimate and say, I will follow him to the end, knowing this, this, and this loss? In this second figure, out of all of these losses, we find that there's no loss likely, at least substantial loss. And it is at the end of the day when we recognize that in this, that we need to appeal to the God of all mercy to take our whole part up of the cost and the loss. We know that when we sit down and we count the cost, that we simply do not have enough willpower, determination. We don't have a loose enough grip on this world. We don't have 100% self-abandonment to wholly follow Christ. But if we, like this king, will see the king of mercy who's coming towards us to conquer us. If we, like this king, will seek the king of mercy, then this king responds and does something wonderful in our lives. He brings the terms of peace. Yes, we simply cannot assess everything that it's going to cost to follow Jesus Christ. There just is no way. And we even can humbly admit and say, we don't even know if we want to pay all of that cost. So God, help me and be merciful to me because I'm not even there. Will you have mercy upon me? Will you give me peace? I am abandoning all of my efforts as much as I know how. All of my inabilities, all of my weak willedness, all of the things that I'm holding on to that I still like to hold on to, and I don't know if I want to give them up for you. So God, you're just going to have to be merciful to me. I need you, and I'm, I'm bowing before you. And believer, this is a moment, really, of worship of Christ. When we are willing to be honest and humble ourselves before the Lord who knows our hearts and say, Lord, you know, I'm not ready to pay the cost. Have mercy on me. No one in that crowd that we know of was having that kind of prayer. They would all walk away 
because they didn't want to be humbled before the Lord of lords and King of kings. But the one who approaches Jesus, the one who approaches the king and says, I, I have nothing to offer you. Even the losses, I still don't know what they're about. Be merciful to me in this moment. It's a moment of worship. And it's a moment of reconciliation. So, when this king answers, when this king answers the plea for mercy, he does something wonderful in our lives. And that is, namely, he transforms these awkward disciples like you and I, into the likeness earlier that Matthew had recorded, but in this passage of one thing, into the likeness of salt, of salt. And so having described the attitude of the heart of those who will approach Jesus for the salvation of the souls by terms of mercy, Jesus continued to show what it is then that happens, what a person's life looks like when they carry the cross. Israel had a wealth of salt like no other country really in the world. It actually had a whole sea of salt. It had the saltiest body of water in all of the world called the Dead Sea. And much of Israel's wealth in salt was processed by the Dead Sea and was used in many of the ways in which you and I use salt today. And so as implied, therefore, when Jesus says, therefore, one could read in the way, therefore, having heard of the call, therefore, having, you've heard what it's going to cost you to follow me. You've heard what it is to have a commitment and discipleship. But if you follow me, you will be a prized commodity for the sake of your usefulness in this world for my purposes. You will be for me like salt. Salt has very, several valuable qualities to it. It's a natural preserver. It is a purifier. And it is a tantalizing seasoning. But one quality that is sometimes overlooked is it's non-diminishing uh, at essence. It's non-diminishing essence. That is, no matter what salt is applied to, it still retains its quality. It still will always be indivisibly salt. So then, if salt is always salt and really no less salt, in what way does it lose its flavor, as Jesus explained? And why would this helpful mineral um, be something that would even be applied to a compost pile? Why would we do that? Well, the Dead Sea, as we had mentioned before, actually contains 10 times more salt than the oceans do naturally. And when salt was harvested from the Dead Sea, it was necessary for the mineral to be processed to remove things that were stuck to the salt, attached to the, the minerals and the grain of the salt. They were called add-ons or tagalongs, And this would be what's called gypsum. Gypsum was a rock and a type of mineral that really had no purpose to, for being on food and diminished the power of the salt. And it would sometimes even coat the entire grain of salt, the entire, the entire sphere of the salt granule. 
And so if that salt then became so attached, this gypsum became so attached to the salt, it became useless. And you really have a small problem on your hands when it becomes useless. And what do you do with it? Well, you don't put it on your food and you don't put it on your land. You really don't know what to do with it. And so there's just a finality about this salt, this gypsum compromised salt. It's just thrown out somewhere. It has a definite end to its usage. And here it's called an absolute end. And so the call to follow Jesus Christ is to learn of the invaluable design for which you, ha- you and I have been called to do. We have been called to be salt. And when you live your life in such a way that you carry the cross of Christ with an unashamed love, with an unrivaled loyalty, with an unqualified loss, you will begin to not just look like salt, you'll be useful like salt as God does his work through you into other people's lives. Jesus desires that his people be salty, that they be useful, really invaluable. When a person looks to Jesus as his savior, he leaves the past behind and he finds his potential and his power in Jesus Christ. He's come to terms of mercy, come to terms with peace with Jesus, and the command to obey the gospel is a command to leave all the things behind, the gypsum, all the add-ons, to leave it all behind in order to pursue Jesus, to leave your sin behind, to leave your guilt behind, to leave your independence behind, to leave your godlessness behind. And so the person who looks to God in repentance is that one who turns away from those things that he has placed his trust in. And he now looks unto God to be his savior, pleading for his mercy, coming to terms with him. And his life is now defined by the nature of a single focus and a pursuit of God's glory. He becomes salt. And like salt, his character, the character of the one who seeks to follow Jesus Christ. The character of the one who seeks to follow Jesus Christ is now pungent. Is that how you would describe your life? Pungent? Saturated? In such a way that others are affected? by who you show Christ to be? Pungent? These disciples are pungent with God's transforming power and pungent with his usefulness. They become really invaluable. And so the multitude that was following Jesus around for the next display of supernatural healing was caught up in the moment They had been caught up with all of the things that Jesus was doing outwardly. But Jesus was calling them to a deeper and a more true realization of the claims that he was making. Jesus was saying, I'm not merely a great physician of the body. 
but I am able to heal the soul. If you will recognize that your greatest problem is in the inner man and not the disease or the affliction or the circumstances surrounding you, then Jesus can be your Savior. Knowing their fickleness, to follow only when sensational miracles were performed, Christ mercifully called them to a greater purpose. They must cast off the temporary infatuation and become true followers of Jesus Christ. They must abandon self-reliance. They must abandon their love for the things of this world. They must abandon the sense of self-preservation in order to find true and lasting value and usefulness in Jesus Christ alone. Like salt, they must be pungent with power. Like salt, in the moment that they begin to live this inestimable usefulness and immerse themselves in this unchanging character rooted in the promises of eternal life, when they lose themselves, that eternal life would begin the moment of their confession and it would continue forever to transform them into a useful, powerful, and pungent vessel for the sake of God's glory. If disciples will live like disciples, they will make disciples. If disciples live like disciples, they will make disciples. So if your prayer is, Lord, make me into someone who is making disciples for your glory. And discipling isn't happening in your life. Come to this passage and let Christ confront you in all humiliation and humility of heart. And say, God, this is not where I am. But Lord, I am willing to come and meet you on the battlefield. And by your mercy, I need for you to declare terms of peace with me. And I have nothing to negotiate with. Like salt, right standing before God will not lose its savor. And like salt, the disciple will make disciples. Hey, folks, this is our mission as a church to glorify God by proclaiming Christ, making disciples. This is what we're all about. This is what we're about seven days a week here. We're about worship. We're about being with Jesus Christ. Some of the reason why we're with Jesus Christ is so he can train us, but we don't stay in training for a lifetime. We are sent even while we're being trained. If you're waiting until you're ready to make a disciple, you're missing it. You see, disciples make disciples while, we're with, while they're with Jesus. Jesus is with you, and he's going to take you wherever you are. And as you're with him, then you're able to share who he is with others and say, come and be with him like I'm with him. Someone who is not with Jesus can't make disciples. And disciples aren't made. 
when we're not with Jesus. Let's pray.